quick note before we get into today's episode of the 1099 podcast with Mike Futter. Uh, this was recorded about a week or two before E3, and there's a couple moments we reference E3 as if it's upcoming. And of course, as you know, it's already done. Uh, 95% of the conversation, maybe 99% of the conversation is not relating to that. But early on, uh, Mike will mention that he was about to go to E3. And we also talk about, I think I mentioned that Battlefield uh, doesn't have a, a a Battle Royale mode yet, which of course at this point has changed. So uh, this episode is all about games media it's all about the business aspect of games and how we cover and talk about that so it's evergreen but if you hear a certain moments you're like wait a minute don't they realize e3 is already done we totally do now this was recorded beforehand but it's it's a really great conversation um with with mike who's been at game informer who's written for variety polygon all over the place uh Moving forward, um, there's going to be quite a few episodes that are unrelated to games media, but there's a lot of cool ones coming up. Uh, Next week's episode will be all about Sable, which is one of the most striking indie games coming out of E3 this year. It is with both members of Shedworks, which as you'd assume, they work in a shed. Uh, normally it's a you know as you know the 1099 is a one-on-one interview format this was uh, both of them at once i think it came out really cool uh, i really enjoyed that episode and it's a really good look behind what it's like preparing for e3 and then getting kind of a major response like they did which was somewhat unexpected um the week after that i'll be talking to joshua queen who is a composer and audio designer recently getting into games i'll be doing podcasts about yoku's island express and then after that it will be the crew too i'll be talking to a developer directly from that team after i play that game so there's going to be a stretch of very game development focused episodes i normally try to balance it but it's just going to kind of play out like that so they're really great conversations so please stick around for all of them um if you could please let me know on twitter at josiah renauden or at the 1099 podcast or even on reddit at the 1099 who you want to hear from next and what style of conversation you want do you want more games media do you want more games criticism do you want more game development do you want more podcasters do you want more youtubers streamers I like to do a mix of everything, but if you feel like I'm missing something lately, please let me know and also let me know who you want to hear from. That helps me. It really helps me know what you want and I can tailor the show in that way. As always, if you enjoy the show, drop a review on iTunes, on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, That's all I got for you now. Again, thanks for all the support. And uh, without further ado, hopefully you enjoy this episode with the wonderful and well-informed Mike Futter.
hello and welcome to episode 154 of the 1099 for the week of June 25th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the author of the Game Dev Business Handbook and the Game Dev Budgeting Handbook, former news editor at Game Informer, and one of the most informed people I know when it comes to the business side of video games. Mike Fodder, Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for that kind intro. I, uh, I hope I live up to, I hope I live up to that intro. I feel like I could have gone on longer, so I, I feel like it was succinct, it's the right amount of information, and I, I know you'll live up to it. it I, I swear, I feel like we've been circling each other on a podcast for years. Um, Absolutely, Since I yeah. first started doing this, you're one of the people I was like, man, Mike would be the perfect person to talk to about so many issues, and now is actually the ideal time because... I'm in game dev now and was in games media. You've worked so closely with game developers and now have this new layer of information that you probably had a good idea of this stuff when you're working at Game Informer, but it's an entirely different world once you get that up-close look. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And like I said, you've, you've worked at Game Informer, you've authored some books, you've worked with Mike Pithel, you're freelancing at various websites. But for me and for also for people who don't know, what does your current work week look like? Like, what is the Mike Futter like the, the the full list of things that you try to get done in a week? Um, right now, my work week is catching up on some games that I haven't had a chance to play. Um, and I've, it's a weird thing is I landed on playing a couple of older games. I just finished Rage, uh, which I oh, started boy. and never finished. And it's like, well, Rage Two was announced, and now's the perfect time to go back. Um, but right now, I'm doing um, a combination of things. I'm doing some pro bono consulting for small uh, independent developers. Um, I'm trying to figure out what my next steps are, actually, because uh, my project wrapped up with Bithel. Um, you know, Bithel Games published uh, the first book, and the second book is currently in layout and art. So we're going to be out with that in the in the coming months. Um, and so I'm doing pro bono consulting right now for for three different small developers, uh, doing very different projects with very different backgrounds. Um, so I usually what I'm doing is I'm checking in with them every week, and if there's you know if we're 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 ready to do a call to talk about their budget, talk about their pitches. Um, you know, there's one developer I'm helping with um, with a media pitch uh, because they have a really cool story and haven't managed and haven't really thought about getting coverage for their really unique business model so yeah. uh, i'm working with them on that but um uh right now i'm actually getting ready for e3 because uh, i didn't think i was going to be going and it turns out that um you know I, I i wrote a piece for variety for about uh, westworld and running a game studio and how founder syndrome which was my master's which was the thing i wrote my master's thesis on um, there's this whole, there's this whole intersection. And Brian said to me, uh, Brian Crescente said to me, he's like, well, are you going to E3? Do you want to do some freelancing? Cause I need freelancers. And I'm like, you know, that sounds like a really cool opportunity. I've never done E3 as a freelancer before. Uh, the yeah. times, uh, I've been there, I was with Game Informer. And then my very first year I was with a website called Rip 10, God rest its soul. Cause it is gone. <laughs> um, uh, thankfully I had backed up all of my major that's always work. the thing that's always so, the you back up all your work kids like that's what you need to do yeah it's sitting the funny thing is it's all sitting in the back end um of a wordpress of a wordpress site it's like it's all there if i ever need it if i ever need to backlink to something i can always just publish it yeah and then backlink to my own site and talk because each one has a note on where on where it originally appeared and when uh but you know i did that as a as a stopgap you know, just in case the, the website ever uh, disappeared. And, and sadly, uh, the website is no longer online. And I had and I had done that. So freelancers, 
uh, back up your stuff, man. Yeah. I, uh, I, I've just recently did a podcast with someone, uh, Joe Noop, who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Did freelance for, um, I think it was Glixel before Crescente moved to Variety for um, GDC, I think it was. And I, that, that's always fascinated me because when I went to E3 and PAX the first time, I was 20, 21. I was working for essentially the volunteer-based site that a lot of people start at where you're just still kind of honing your writing and mm-hmm. you know, various opinions on writing for free. But I, I, I yeah. do remember just like, you, you know, you're working for one site, you have one goal in mind and you are like kind of full time with that. I would assume it's going to be, I don't even done it yet, very different to do this with uh, on a freelance basis. Are you going to be picking up work from other, maybe a polygon or something like a waypoint or something like that too? I, I think I want to see what my schedule looks like. Brian is, is doing all the booking for E3 and then he's going to be um, offering up the assignments. So um, he's guaranteed, he's actually, and this is kind of inside baseball stuff. He's guaranteed me a large number of assignments. So I might not need to pick up other stuff, but if I decide that I actually do have time, cause I write pretty quickly um, then I'll reach out to my contacts at other sites and saying, Hey, if you need somebody to pick up an appointment here or there, I can do that. Yeah. Uh, never fear inside baseball stuff on this podcast. This, this podcast is essentially inside baseball games, the podcast, like that's get real nitty gritty. And oh, I, I feel I like think... I'm at home. This is nice. <laughs> this is a lot what we do. And I, it's, it's funny when people think of, uh, when people move around in different roles in game, they think, oh, it's just natural to go from PR to media to dev to production to this and that. And it's really not. Like, just because no. you work in video games doesn't mean they are similar things, similar skills. It takes, trust me, I'm learning that right now. It takes a lot of different skills to do different aspects of games. For you so far, with a lot of the different roles you've filled from reviews editor to news editor to author to consulting and talking to developers, has it felt natural moving to these different sides of video games was it something that you feel like you caught on to pretty quickly or with each transition has it been this big hurdle i think that you know a lot of my learning was done up front again on a volunteer basis i worked for a website called ztgd it was this website has been volunteer for for years and years and years um and i i was there as a volunteer as well i signed on as a copy editor um, as I was transitioning out of nonprofits, which was my which was my first career, I did a lot of grant writing and appeal letter writing. I, I was in fundraising, and I left fundraising because <laughs> it's fundraising, and it's a lot easier uh, to do. It, I just wasn't in love with it anymore. Yeah, uh, and you know, it's one of those things where if you're not in love with it anymore, then then why are you doing it? So I left um, nonprofits, and I was doing copy copy editing, um, and then. You know, Ken started giving me review codes, and I started reviewing stuff. A lot of it was reviewing stuff on my commute in and out of New York City. And then, um, you know, after a year of doing that, um, you know, I had met Dave Oshry, who had been managing RIP10. Uh, Chad Lackis, who is the publisher of RIP10, reached out to me. He's like, Dave's leaving. I need somebody to run the site. Are you interested? And it was like, all right, well, this is a huge jump for me. Um Chad's going to pay me a very little amount of money. So it was, you know, my, technically my first paying gig in the industry. Uh, and with, you know, through that, I guess with ZTGD, I went to my first event, which was Call of Duty XP. Uh, yeah. The very first time they ran it. In oh, man. Yeah. Um, and then I was at the Darksiders 2 reveal. And I had stumbled into, and this is kind of going back into my history. I had kind of stumbled into an opportunity to interview Danny Bilson when he was still at THQ, hmm. which is what put me on the radar because I was talking to them about things that 
nobody was really talking. Nobody had the opportunity to talk to them about like their NASDAQ warning. So they yeah. had they were under yet another threat of being delisted from NASDAQ. The only game that they had coming out before their deadline ran out was Darksiders 2. And I asked Danny Bilson on the, on the interview, so Darksiders 2 is the only game that's coming out. Like, how are you planning on, on getting your stock price up? And he said, well, we haven't committed to when Darksiders 2 is releasing. It's like, well, that's not true. I have a press release here that has a release date yeah. in it. Um, and, you know, it was at that point, like, first, I, you know, I was able to report before anybody else that the game was being delayed because they weren't. They were not committing to that original release date. But also I was I was doing business reporting and I got this call from Alexander Slowinski, who is now Mike Bithel's chief operating officer. Um, and, and Alexander, he calls me, he's like, so who are you exactly? Because <laughs> he had never heard of me and and and, and I was doing a, a type of business reporting that, that hadn't been done before. So my, my ramp, going back to your question, like kind of I learned a lot. Like going to my first press event was a huge learning curve. Like doing my first group, like it was a group setting interview um, with Michael Condry from, from Sledgehammer Games because they worked on Modern Warfare 3. And, uh, and then going to kind of these reveal events. And then going and getting these these exec interview opportunities and like really understanding, you know, how to how to talk about business because I have an MBA. My, my background, I ran I ran the finances for a nonprofit, a million dollar nonprofit organization in Rochester, New York when I lived there. So I have I have a business background yeah. and, um, you know, a lot of it was learning how to interview executives and, and learning how to interview developers and, and learning how to marry that. That end user consumer, I just want to play my games perspective with the perspective of, um, I the, of the people who want to understand like how those games get made, not just from a technical perspective, but how the machine works in order to get a game from concept to market and then post launch support. And you know when I jumped over to to doing you know and I, I learned a lot and I thought I knew a lot when I was a news editor, and boy I learned even more interviewing tons of developers for the book and it was really amazing because people were so willing to sit down and be open and honest about their challenges, about their successes, about um, the mistakes that they've made. And part of that was because the mission of the book was to help people. And this was, you know, the idea behind the book was um, Mike and Alexander wanted to uh, take some of, you know, Bithel Games' success and pay that forward to other developers. And other, and the developers who I approached for interviews, um, you know, almost to uh, every single one, was like absolutely I want to participate in this. We need we need something like this. So it has been a constant learning process. Um, but in terms of those those big jumps, I would say I came you know I joined Game Informer in 2013 in April and I was at my first E3 with them in June and that was when the PlayStation 4 and Xbox well the PlayStation 4 was you know revealed in February, Xbox One was was revealed after i started and then that e3 was the was the big e3 for both your e3 was my first e3 i was at the exact same e3 as the last one i went to um so so yeah so that was that was huge because then i'm in a room with phil spencer after microsoft you know kind of had talked about their no used games and sony had dunked on them that night and it was it was a really interesting time to to join a major outlet and have that access. And that kind of continued throughout Like this generation has been wild to cover yeah. from a news perspective. And, um, you know, if there's one thing that I learned in doing that, especially as, you know, the, the tables kind of, kind of turn, you know, Microsoft and the Xbox 360 were so huge in the United States. And then Sony kind of took over this generation, um, from the sales perspective is that, um, you know, what it means to be fair, 
in news reporting uh, and what it means to um, and, and, and what it means to uh, to cover to cover the news with integrity. And I'm not going to say that I didn't make any mistakes because we all make mistakes and I learn from them. And there are, there are certainly stories that I think back on that I regret the angle that I took or my perspective on it because I probably was a little too judgy. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that, that if you're not as a, as a journalist being introspective, uh, especially as a news writer, uh, you know, being introspective about your coverage, then you're not doing yourself or your readers a service. Um, but I, I would say that that was the biggest the biggest jump is is you know getting in the room with executive after executive after executive and balancing, um, asking the hard questions. You don't want to walk away from an interview feeling like you softballed them, feeling like uh, feeling like there was no question that they didn't pause even once yeah. to respond to, um, but also being fair and not you know alienating someone who you want to continue to talk to, um, and that's the challenge of access journalism too. Yeah. First off, it's funny how much our you know careers are actually lining up because one, we went to the same E3 as our first E3. And two, my big break also came with Darksiders 2, where I interviewed like the creative director and the lead combat designer with mm-hmm. Kevin Van Ord from GameSpot. And that kind of helped me get my foot in the door. So this is bizarre. Uh, <laughs> the second, you did mention this business side and how much you've learned since you've really gotten deeper into it and maybe mm-hmm. looking at some of that past coverage and being like, was this fair? Or did I address this issue or cover this issue maybe the way I should have or I could have today? So in your mind, from everything you've done, how important is it to understand the business side of games when you're reporting on the ongoing so developers and publishers? Because I do feel like at times media, and I'm not going to sit here and bash media, but they assume a lot. They assume a lot about why things are done or why can't this be like that or why can't that be like this? Mm-hmm. And one of the most frustrating review things, I mean, I reviewed games for GameSpot and IGN for a long time. And one thing I really tried to avoid, and I probably failed it sometimes, is trying to backseat develop for people and be like, well, if they would have just done this or if they would have tackled things this way, if they yeah. go in that direction. And the longer that I'm making games, which at this point, as is recording, it's like a month, but you realize why decisions are made that might seem unwise if you're just playing the game, but they have to be done certain ways. So in the news realm, do you think that right now media assumes too much without actually knowing the real business side of video games? I, I think it depends. I think there are some people who are doing great business writing right now. I, Jeff Grubb, man, I, I've just seen him mature as as someone who's covering the business side of the industry, and I love what he's doing. Um, I love I love the perspective that that he brings to the table, especially. So I want to I want to give give Jeff his props, um, but I think the the biggest challenge for me, kind of along what you're along what you're asking, is when I see stories come out from people who do make those assumptions uh, about how how the industry works. And I think there are a lot of writers who understand the 101 of how the industry works, the kind of that that top level, that intro level. But I think in terms of how business decisions are made. Or really having the business foundations to understand industry in general, not just the video game industry, but understand how business works, understand how yeah. the legal world works. Um, and, and I'll come back to that um, in a moment. But, you know, unfortunately, I do see stories from time to time that read to me as business fan fiction. I would, you know, this is the way they should have done it. Okay, but that's not, that is not how business works at all. Here are the yeah. reasons why it didn't happen like that. Um, and on the legal side, and this kind of is married to the business side, and I'll, I'll use Nintendo as an example because 
they find themselves in the line of fire because people love their work so much. But, you know, let's talk about games like another Metroid 2 remake and Pokemon Uranium. You know, these things go on for a while. They kind of bubble under the surface and then all of a sudden they get they get a big splash, right? And, you know, these games are, quote, released, whether that's their final version or a playable form where they're where these creators are comfortable you know, sharing this fan game that they made with the world, Nintendo is like, well, now we have to pay attention to this because it's getting a lot of coverage and, and visibility. Uh, here's your cease and desist. By the way, if you get a cease and desist in this age, you're very lucky because mm. there's no obligation for a company to send a cease and desist. They can just sue you. Yeah. Um, so what I see from a number of um, a number of reporters is, you know, you know, big bad Nintendo, for instance protecting their intellectual property. It's just a fan game. It's nonprofit. First of all, as someone who worked in nonprofits and heard people say, well, we're nonprofit in the absolute wrong definition. By the way, to be a nonprofit, you need, in the United States, you need classification from the IRS to actually operate as a nonprofit organization. Just because you don't make money doesn't mean you're not a nonprofit. Um, just because you aren't making money on your fan game or selling your fan game doesn't mean you aren't infringing on someone's intellectual property. And fair use is something that isn't understood well in the gaming community. And I really, really wish that more reporters would understand fair use. And if they don't understand it themselves when reporting on these things, get in touch with an attorney who covers the video game industry. Get in touch with Ryan Morrison, with Brandon Huffman. If you're Canadian, get in touch with Ryan Black. Like there are, there are, and the list goes on, by the way. There are more and more attorneys who are becoming... Uh, visible in the video game space if you're a reporter and you don't understand fair use or you don't understand why a company dropped the hammer on a fan game reach out to an attorney likewise yeah. if you don't understand business or you don't understand how to make sense of an earnings report that has significant information and i'm not talking about like this game was delayed into the next fiscal year although understanding why that's relevant and i don't think a lot of reporters do understand why moving a game from one fiscal year to the next is relevant versus moving a game from first quarter to third quarter is when why that's less relevant i'm not saying it's irrelevant for for how a game might sell or what it's positioned against but moving it into the next fiscal year is a significant business event um especially when you're talking about let's say rockstar delaying a game into the next you know into take two's next fiscal year um where you're talking about you know huge amounts of money like if if when when grand theft auto inevitably got delayed from one fiscal year to the next um, that was a huge business event for Take-Two. But understanding why that is, I don't know that everybody uh, who reports on that can contextualize why that matters so much other than you're going to have to wait longer to play it. Yeah. So I do see a lot of assumptions made and I do see a lot of business fan fiction and I do see, I don't blame anybody for not having that foundation, but I do question when people don't reach out to attorneys or business professionals to help get that context. There are analysts beyond Michael Pachter who are willing to go and talk to you about that. Um, you know, Daniel Ahmad, uh, who's with Nico Partners, who covers the Asian market, has always been fantastic. When I was writing about Tencent for Polygon, he was a wealth of, of knowledge. Uh, Sirkin Toto, again, covers, covers the Asian market. There are, tons of, there are tons of analysts, you know, around the world who are willing to go on the record and help, and help reporters break down why, why, why certain events are significant and others might not be. I agree with you that I don't always blame the people who don't have that background because you can't assume that everyone who's ever going to write about video game news is going to have this this really deep and sound foundation of I understand why businesses do what they do and how they do that. Um, but there is that extra mile sometimes you just need to go. 
mm-hmm. where you need to talk to those people. And like you said, I've had Michael Pactor on this podcast twice, but there are a lot of other people who maybe don't have the name recognition, but might know just as much or more than Michael Pactor about this stuff. And it's it's not bad. It might to be ask. more accessible. I mean, look, 100%. when I needed when I needed to get in touch with Michael for a story at Game Informer, he always responded, and yeah. that's to his credit. But you know, he's he's a busy guy, and you might not always get that. So having a Rolodex that's that's has more than one name in it for stories like this is important. Yeah, and it is important when you're making broad statements on a large platform that you mm-hmm. are able to back that up. And like you said, contextualize things. Like there's just so many times where it feels like people are making statements and there's just like, I, you can't back that up. And again, I think when, when people talk about you can't, you need to be able to understand how games are made before you can review them. I don't agree with that because you should be able to critique something that you're playing without having a rich development background. Mm-hmm. But with news, you do need an understanding of how things work before you can have any sort of opinion on them, before you can report them to a major site uh, on a major site. And we talked before, uh, we were going back and forth over Twitter about your review experience because it was a while ago that you were mm-hmm. a reviews editor. So I and I was the same thing. I was uh, an executive editor, editor in chief at one point for very smaller sites, not big sites. But I remember writing reviews that if I read now, I would cringe. I'd be like, I can't believe I made that assumption or I can't believe I tackled it in this way. So as a former reviews editor, has your time interviewing people who make games, has that changed the way that you would critique them if you were writing reviews today? Because I would assume, okay, I'm a, you're a better writer. You'd phrase things differently. Sure. You might have <laughs> way better turns of phrase or you're not, you know, you're using words better. My pun, uh, my pun you, game is so much better than it was. Oh yeah, just aggressive puns regular. at every single paragraph. Every paragraph actually ends with a new pun. Um, <laughs> like, of course, there's like that kind of stuff, but has talking to all of these different people and gotten a greater understanding of how games are made and why certain decisions are made, would that change how you critique things? Or can you not let that human element of it throw you off in any way? Would you write and critique things the same way? Well, I think it goes back to the contextualization thing. I think having that information and being able to contextualize for a reader potentially why something is the way it is, uh, rather than just Uh, saying that you don't like it. And by the way, I think you're right. I think critiquing the end product is completely valid. I don't think you have to have worked in a game studio or developed a game or even tinkered with one of the many, you know, know, engines or or development tool suites, um, made mods or anything like that to, to understand how to critique an artistic product. We come out of the movie theater every time we go and we say, we liked that movie. We didn't like that movie. Here's what I liked. Here's what I didn't. I don't know how movies are made. I don't know what happens in the editing bay. I mean, I have that 101 level of understanding. I know there are cameras involved. I know there's a director. I know there are actors. I know there's motion capture and, and you know, or you know green screen effects. But I don't know how movies are made. And to that end, like I don't have the level of knowledge as many of the people that I interviewed for the book on how games are made. I have a way better understanding than I ever did when I was when I was writing news full time. But I still wouldn't say that I know how games are made on a day-by-day basis. I haven't, I haven't done that. I don't have that, that, that personal experience. Um, but, what I, but what I can say is that you can use that kind of understanding to inform um, you know, a, some, you know, an, a, a critical response to a game um, without, um, you know, or not. I mean, I, I, again, this, this kind of goes back to your point, is I don't need to know how to make games in order to make a very strong critical uh, response to that 
to that game. Well, this is where it gets complicated for me because I think it is valid and helpful to know uh, why is this aspect of the game like this? How did this happen and why mm-hmm. wasn't it maybe better or were they or either way, like why did this not come together? You might be able to understand that and empathize with that, but in the end, when you're playing that video game, is this part effective? Is it doing what it's supposed to do? Or is it doing yep. something of value? Or is it not? And there's a lot of times where, again, now that I know a lot of these developers, there's definitely a, man, I would feel bad if I had to review this thing that I know how much work you put into it. And I know why this aspect didn't come together. But that shouldn't change it from a 6 to an 8 for me because I feel bad for the reason this didn't come together. And like that's the... I think I know how I well, feel about it, but it would be it, harder to review games now. You know what? I, I, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, you're also up against business environments. And I understand the business environment that these that, that games exist in. Let me, let me ask you a question then. Yeah. If you saw a game come out on the same day as, let's say someone was silly enough to release a game on August on October 26th when Red Dead Redemption 2 comes out, mm. and that game doesn't do well, um, you know, you might understand why that game didn't perform as well at retail or on you know digital storefronts but at this at some point there's a there's a person making those decisions and those decisions inform the final product and everything that exists around that product and that's true whether or not you understand why that is or not the 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 fact of the matter is if if you're writing consumer reviews in my opinion um, if you are engaged in consumer reviews, using that context to help explain to a reader, and maybe that's a separate piece, maybe that's not the review even. Yeah. Um, using that context is helpful, but at the end of the day, the end user wants to know, am I going to enjoy playing this game? And what are the things that, that resonated with me? Um, and, and kind of along those lines, and I'm going to ch- you know, change the direction on this just a touch, yeah. if, you know, Far Cry 5. You know, there was... You know, from a narrative perspective, there were there were a number of stories about how that game didn't fulfill its promise or didn't do enough to um, to talk about uh, the you know the the enemies in that game, like to really you know to build out the motivations for the enemies and why why you were uh, why you as the player character are are fighting them. And there were two schools of thought: don't critique the game for what it isn't. Don't critique the narrative for what it isn't. And it's okay to critique the narrative for what it is because the marketing that led up to it was positioned in such a way that it allowed people to uh, believe that the game was going in this direction. You're talking about Montana. You're talking about a cult. You're talking about a lot of guns. You know, it's in America and where we are today sociopolitically. You know, I think there's, there's a good debate to be had on both of those points. Um, Turning that lens back to um, that the issue with you know my old reviews and mistakes that I believe I can't point to a specific instance where I made this mistake, but I believe that I probably fell into this trap more than once, like you said, which is that backseat game development. Not talking about what the game is, but talking about what the developer should have done um, from a mechanical perspective. I saw one developer, and again, I can't remember what game it was. But it was on Twitter shortly after that game launched. It was this thing that you all think would have been a great gameplay thing. We tried it in about 20 different ways and it wasn't fun. Yeah. And that ba- it's that backseat development thing, that backseat gameplay thing that you're not operating as a critic from a full range of... You don't have all the information. You don't know what was tried. You don't know what would have been fun because it probably was attempted 
because it felt natural. If you're thinking this was a great idea, someone in the studio probably thought, hey, that's a good idea. Let's see if we can make it work. And maybe it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's these debates to be had, but I, I, I would caution against people backseat developing in their reviews. But I think it's completely fine to say, here's why things happened the way they did from a technical perspective or from a mechanical perspective. If that makes any sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. And I do think, and that's probably maybe the best way to put it, is a lot of right now, if I start reviewing games again, I would be able to contextualize a lot of different things. But I don't think I would change you know, how I score games or really mm-hmm. how I feel like my, my philosophy for critiquing is. And it's it, yeah, the, the Far Cry is a great example because there is that a lot of people out there saying you can't judge this thing because of what you thought it was going to be but then you come back with look they marketed it this way like this is what everyone was uh, at that company was saying it was going to be and maybe that's publisher versus developer and maybe that's a different conversation but this is what this seemed like it was going to be how it was pitched and especially in like you said the current environment boy when you it's hard when you pull punches when you pull punches as an environment after you set it up a certain way and suddenly you kind of pull the rug and say ah just kidding it's a fun thing um mm-hmm. it, that game has moments that i've not played all the way through it but it, it constantly feels like it could have been grander and that, that goes back to the backseat developing where it's like okay but if that's not what they did if they tried that and it didn't focus test in a certain way i mean we got to be honest with how big these budgets are and a lot of publishers are going to be risk averse. So it's, did the developer want that? And the publisher said, no. The developer realized that they didn't feel comfortable going all the way in on mm-hmm. that. Does that matter for the score you give it? Like, I think yes. And there is the sidebar stuff that yep. what goes in a sidebar? What, what's a separate feature? What's in a review? I think Titanfall 2 is a fantastic example of what you mentioned before of this really incredible game coming out at a bad time. Mm-hmm. It came out, what was it, right after, right before Battlefield? I want to say it was sandwiched right in between Battlefield 1 and Call of Duty. And that's was ridiculous. it like the week after it was like there was a it was a week there were two weeks between them or one week between them and that's where where Titanfall land and you can't you, even if the quality in my opinion that game was better than both of those other games but you can't beat that brand recognition mm-hmm. just based off uh, you know marginally better well, like I, I think it was significantly better but marginally better quality and that's the kind of thing where you might contextualize that in a review but was it better just to write a feature in the future based off your knowledge of business practices talking about why that might happen or why this game succeeded and why this game failed talking to those developers talking to the publishers about why talking to analysts discussing that like there's there's room for all that and i think there's still an ongoing discussion about what belongs in a review and what belongs in subsequent features and articles my my feeling on these and let's let's talk about those two those two instances because i think that's really interesting on the far cry 5 thing you know at this point and this is again this is the you talk about knowing how games are made um as as informing your reviews or potentially you know changing the way you review games for me understanding the business practice around them is just as complicated because in this case i understand why the game was marketed as it was and my perspective on this conversation about you know did far cry 5 live up to everything people thought it was the only reason people it, again, this is my opinion. The reason people believed the game to be a certain thing is because, not because of the developers or anything the developers necessarily did, but you've got a publisher, which is a large company. You know, you've got this enormous company in Ubisoft, and you've got different departments, and developers don't always have input or the final say on what goes into how a game is marketed or presented to the press. And especially when you're talking about enthusiast press where, you know, we're going to send you this trailer. You're going to have to watch this trailer 
to write about this game because we want you to write about this game. And this trailer sends you down one path thinking mm. what this game might be or is vague enough that and presents imagery. And this was the case, and this was the case with Far Cry 5, I think. There was, a, there was a presentation of imagery without explicit story information. And it was people wrote their first pieces about that game based on that imagery. Yeah. And given where we are sociopolitically, given the, what's going on in the United States especially, you know, understanding how that imagery connects with what we're experiencing as, as a society um, informed a lot of the discourse that came after. So as someone who understands, you know, the business side of things and, and how these decisions are made, because I think this is a place where end users are like, well, Ubisoft marketed like this, the developers failed. It's like, okay, that isn't how it happened. Like I can safely say that that's not how it happened, even though I have no inside information because I understand how large publishers work. And I understand that your marketing department doesn't necessarily interface completely and totally with your developers. Um, you know, the marketing department is looking to sell the game and you know position the game based on a set of um, understandings, a set of pillars about what that game is that might not align exactly with the gameplay pillars. Yeah, so you know, I understand how the uh, how marketing and uh, development don't necessarily completely talk, and therefore, you know, you get a situation where a game is, you know, the, ver the very first time the public and the press see it, you know, it's people are led to believe whether through their own biases or through uh, the imagery that's used. Because again, those first trailers are very light on information usually, um, you know, led to believe one thing. And then uh, you've got, you know, the actual game, which goes in a slightly different direction, but different enough in this case because of the, our political landscape where, um, where, where people are left a little bit confused about why there's a mismatch between what they thought the game was and what the game actually is. Yeah, it's, it, it, and you almost have to be... I feel like marketing and development don't always have to be exactly on the same page, but when there's that big of a gap between what that thing turned out to be and what it was pitched as, and like you said, when that's all you're given, when that's the trailer you're sent out as an IGN or as a GameSpot or as whatever site, there's no real other conclusions you can draw from that, knowing the environment and knowing the direction they were going for. So when it's that far off, it is hard. Sometimes outside forces are going to impact your expectations going into a review, and I, there's that huge wave of people who think objective reviews is a thing, which they're not. No. Um, and but this game lasts thirty hours if you play it. <laughs> that's an objective review. Yeah, it's to think... shoot like like that's essentially yeah, when you exactly. do objective reviews, you're just writing a description of the game. But there, there's always going to be certain expectations you carry in with you. But this is actually something. Uh, I was watching, and again, this is coming out a few weeks when we actually record, but just recently, Battlefield, mm -hmm. uh, the newest one, Battlefield V or 5, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Uh, just You know what? I, the V makes sense to me. People people said, like, I don't understand. They've never used Roman numerals before. And I saw V, and I'm like, oh, it's a World War II game, V for victory. Yeah, that's kind of where my head went to. It, it is like a, a, maybe the bouncing back and forth between 4 and 1, and then V is a little weird, but I, I get in the end mm -hmm. why you would land on V. And I, going on your Twitter feed and watching it during a reveal is almost always a bad idea because there is a <laughs> a level of snark that is there before something is revealed that is almost difficult to, it's almost difficult to get yourself excited or enjoy anything because you're like watching this and like, man, before this is even revealed, people already have an assumption. And I, I think that it's healthy to have a certain cynicism about the industry and especially mm -hmm. games of that nature, that size that are coming out. Oh yeah. Sometimes every year, every other year where look, you're not going to be like, 
Oh, F yeah, here we go. New Battlefield game. I'm so excited. I'm going to squeal when it gets revealed because I love video games. Like, I don't think you should be overly pro-consumer. But we're also in the spot where it's there's so much cynicism that even things that end up being cool, people already have these assumptions. So based off everything, all the different aspects of games you've been a part of, especially in terms of media, do you think the current media, and whether that's on Twitter or IGN or GameSpot or just everyone as a whole, is it too positive, too snarky, or just right? Do you feel like we're at a point where we are judging things before they even get a chance to prove themselves? Or do you think we sometimes just throw too much praise even when something might not be perfect or might not be good at all? I think it's I think it's case by case. I think there are some cases where the snark machine on Twitter. I just finished watching uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy again, and the scene where Frodo gets caught by Shelob in the web. I feel like that's what it's like on Twitter when you're trying to watch a reveal and the snark machine is going. I just I'm trying to cut through all the <laughs> the web of bullshit. It's just like, come on, just let me like let's. Let's slow down the snark machine. You guys are all funny. You are all the best internet comedians I've ever met. <laughs> Let's just dial it back a little. And at the same time, you see trailers come out, and I am guilty of this. Like, I hype trailers work. That's why they're that's why they're a normal practice. Hype trailers, they work. Uh, so I get really excited. I think, you know, from a from again, this is from a business perspective. I think the snark is often generated by long-running franchises that don't change their formulas a lot. And yet when you look at the Call of Duty reveal, which is a massive change in the formula, the snark machine just points its direction a different way. I think there are some there are some sacred cows out there for a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I think when a series has been gone for so long and then finally comes back after uh, after a long time, it, it kind of in, is insulated from that snark a little bit because people have they have the rose colored glasses on for what the what that franchise was, or even if they acknowledge it's you know changes they want to go back to that world so they're willing to turn the snark machine off and that's when you get the over over hype when kingdom hearts 3 showed up at e3 2013 i think like there was a lot of genuine enthusiasm for that in you know amongst the industry i think it's important to remember that enthusiast press are usually enthusiasts yeah i don't want to say that that's a universal case because i think there are people who are you know who are in it for a long time and they lose that that joy for the medium or because they they know how the sausage is made and that's all they do every day is watch the sausage get made that 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 joy kind of gets muted and then it comes back if they're away from it for a little while. Um, so I think it's it's case by case and I think that there are very few times where we have a very even collectively and again this is all collective a very even response to things. Um, I think Rage Two was a really interesting uh, the way that rolled out. Because you had that leak from Walmart Canada, which kind of everybody was like, Rage 2? Really? That, yeah. that game's getting, that series is getting another shot? And there are people who either played it and didn't like it, played it all the way through and didn't like the ending because the ending was definitely lackluster in my opinion. Um, or who really liked that game, but they were confused because like, really? Rage is getting another shot? So you had this big, huh? moment that happened before the game was actually revealed which meant that when the game was actually was was revealed bethesda dodged that whole snark machine yeah that actually worked in their favor more than they could have ever imagined oh yeah because they got to they essentially got to reveal the game they they were nimble and this is a big thing and if we can come back to that word i'd love to but this was this was a really big thing for them because they were able to respond to this and steal the spotlight how many games were supposedly leaked in that walmart canada thing 
And and first of all, Bethesda just ruined everybody. They ate everybody's lunch by making something out of it, but also by essentially, you know, early co- confirmation that that leak was real. Like if Rage 2, like, because nobody, Walmart Canada's thing was, oh, it was all speculative. I'm like, come on, nobody is speculating Rage 2. Nobody actually believes Rage 2 is <laughs> yeah, showing Rage up at E3. Rage 2 is not like, you know what's going to happen at E3 that I know everyone's going to go crazy about? Rage 2. Like that had to be some insider shit. Yep. Like you could have... Um, you could have made the case that uh, that uh, Splinter Cell, which was on that list, was going to come because they got uh, Michael Ironside back for a little cameo in mm. Wildlands. It's like, why would you bring Michael Ironside back if you're not actually going to do something with Splinter Cell? And, oh, my God, Michael Ironside's back as Sam Fisher. Um, so, you know, but that one was was really interesting. But they got that that snarky, huh, nobody liked Rage moment out before and made, you know, did such a really cool social media thing that everybody was kind of in awe that they responded like that. And that's partially the benefit of being a private company. It's, and it's partially the benefit of, of Pete Hines, who is just a master of his craft. Um, and, and his team, which is, which is really, really fantastic. Um, so kudos to Bethesda for, for kind of rolling with that. But you know, the kind of thing I want to talk about, I mentioned the word nimble. I think what we're going to see, um, you know, is that publishers and developers are going to have to react faster uh, and yeah. more fluidly and with less red tape than they have in the past. Um, and Epic Games is, I want to say, probably the masterclass in being nimble in the industry right now. As yeah, a large that's company. probably the best example I've maybe ever seen. Like, you know, I, they they have responded to um, to things so quickly there I, I i must imagine their art department is just the fastest art department in the world or more likely their approval process is designed for speed and for rapid iteration because they're rolling stuff out so fast i don't know how long and i know there were a couple of a couple of articles written about it i haven't read them yet so perhaps this this knowledge is is out there but how long they they kind of worked with disney on the Infinity War thing on the Thanos thing to get that up and running, like that required not just a level of flexibility and agility, but um, you know that partnership was just again it was one of those huh moments that just worked out really well. It's it is really incredible to watch someone take a game like Fortnite, which no one really seemed to be all that you know hyped about after it came out it didn't seem to have Mm -hmm. this massive community and then to turn that on its head and make it you know i was uh, during the time where fortnite really started to gain steam i remember saying whether on twitter or something and it's it was very like hot takey at the time of like man i wonder if this could reach minecraft level of this familiarity with people outside of games and this cultural thing that is maybe not bigger than video games, but close where mm-hmm. it becomes that size. And when I said that people were like, you're an idiot. Like that's maybe I wasn't <laughs> an idiot. Maybe I was in the moment like that. They could never be that. And now it's just this point where Fortnite is, is the biggest game in the world. And like, that's, oh, that's yeah. not a hot take at all. Fortnite is the biggest video game in the world right now. It, it is. And it did it faster than Minecraft. And it did it faster than, than anybody ever realized. And this goes back to something that I've been beating on, you know, on social a lot. And in conversations, and I did a panel on this at PAX West last year, which is the the industry is iterating on trends so fast right now that trend chasing is deadly. And it requires, again, it requires an organization that is entirely nimble to take a game like Fortnite, which was a PvE game that was announced years and years ago, 
and say, you know what, this battle royale thing is a thing. Let's move fast and capitalize on this because I don't think they were working on it for so long that it was in parallel development with uh, with PUBG for that long. Like I, you know, PUBG got out there, and I think it really feels like Epic responded and responded in such a way that. Um, that took some core concepts from their PvE game and adapted them so well to a PvP environment, um, especially a Battle Royale environment, that um, that it was wonderful. And honestly, they were helped by their competition. Yeah. You know, you had um, Blue Hole, which got so angry at Epic. And, you know, remember, PUBG was the king for months. And it turned around that when, when Epic announced Fortnite Battle Royale, Bluehole got so upset and they made a big stink about it and they, you know, they issued, you know, press releases and stuff. All of a sudden, they kicked the spotlight over to Epic. And Epic is now basking in a spotlight that their competition shined on them. And yeah. not in a bad way. So it's been really interesting to watch that evolve. And, you know, again, kudos to Epic for... for for doing their thing and doing it in such a way that it just feels like they are on top of things like very few other developers and publishers are. And the, the trend thing is so crazy because the, the, like you said, nimble is the huge word here because you think about MMOs years back where world of Warcraft was on top of the world. And so many people were investing heavily in massive MMOs that were taking four or even five years to come mm -hmm. out. And when they came out, the fervor was gone. People didn't yep. care about MMOs anymore. And at that point you're sitting there maybe a year off from release and you're in Elder Scrolls Online, you're uh, the Old Republic, you're, you're anything like that, Kingdoms of Amalur, like they were going to have one in that yeah. world. And, and you look at that and you're, you're a year out release and you have 50 million maybe more deep and you're like, the audience isn't here anymore. Uh, and you're you probably can, 50, but you're probably well more than 50 million. I guess you are when you're going on that an scale. MMO. And, and um, you, I mean, you look at something like Overwatch, which was Titan before, and they take it and make it into this entirely different thing, and it be, it's incredible, and everyone loves it, and I'm maybe the biggest Overwatch fan you're going to find. <laughs> that is a level of nimble that's hard to pull off, and, and Fortnite, again, it's the ultimate example. It's seeing this trend. It's understanding that right now there is not a console version of this. Like, there is not a console. There's, there's this massive audience, this massive casual, quote-unquote casual audience, who doesn't know that Battle Royale really exists, they're going to mm -hmm. think that Fortnite's the first one. And so many people do think that Fortnite is the, the, the game that well, invented this concept. And there were people who thought that PUBG invented that concept. Yeah. And that was the, the funny thing about Blue Hole getting so upset is like H1Z1 did yeah. this and DayZ kind of did this, although differently. And like this concept had been around, like there were some there were some pre-PUBG games that, that really attempted this, but they weren't as sticky as PUBG. Um and, you know, the thing that PUBG did that was really cool was the shrinking arena, you know, was the shrinking arena, um, the circle. And that was the thing they got really upset at, at um, um, that was the thing they got upset at Epic about. But you can't patent or copyright a mechanic. So yeah. now, now you've got Bluehole or PUBG Corp, which is suing, um, which is suing Netties, I think. Um, which has a couple of mobile versions, mobile battle royale games that they say are too similar. And there's a an amended filing that has images like side by side. And I'm looking at this going, your problem here is that there's a frying pan in both. <laughs> okay. Your problem is that this one has, they both have buildings where resources might spawn. Okay. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to play, see how that plays out in court because you know, from a mechanical standpoint, I don't think they're, you know, and this is again talking to a couple of attorneys about this. You can't 
patented copyright mechanics. Um, so you're, you can't protect them in a way that you'd want to. But then again, if you're PUBG, if you're Blue Hole, you know, and you could patent mechanics, aiming down sights is a game mechanic. Uh, driving in a vehicle would be a game mechanic. Picking up ammo for a gun would be a game mechanic. If you could patent every game mechanic, you wouldn't have games. You wouldn't yeah. have games that could iterate. It's uh, So it's going to be interesting to, to watch that roll out. But yeah, it's just the trend chasing thing. I, I really worry because, yeah, we saw we saw the MMO trend and we saw the MOBA trend. And MOBAs are, are kind of, you know, now you've got the, the kind of the two big players. You, know, you got League of Legends and you got Dota 2. Smite does, you know, has their has their community. Um, you've got Arena Valor on mobile from Tencent, which does its thing. But think about how many MOBAs attempted to come out and just disappeared. Um, EA attempted to have a MOBA and they ended up abandoning it before it did anything really. Um, and if you look at trend to trend to trend to trend, how fast that iteration cycle has happened, it's getting to the point where, you know, even if you are generous and you look at an, you know, an 18 month development cycle at this point, you know, if you, you know, if, if when Fortnite came out or two weeks after Fortnite came out, when it had established itself as the thing and really, you know, showed its momentum, if you started on an 18 month development cycle to create a new uh, Battle Royale game at that point, I think you're late. I think you're so late that, you know, you are you're not going to be able to to steal mindshare and player base from from epic is call of duty even too late is because that's going to essentially be the first big triple a gonna try this type of thing that's coming out at the end of the year is that is it going to be able to like you said take that mind share i i think it will you know it will have its it will have its fans um call of duty has a loyal enormous fan base i think the you know there's a vocal minority of people who believe or want people to believe that call of duty is crap and nobody likes call of duty and it's just not the case Call of Duty is a wildly popular franchise. Um, I think that it's going to be very interesting to watch. I think some of the things that are done differently, again, now PUBG was originally a third-person game and Fortnite's a first a third-person game. I know PUBG added a first-person mode, but Call of Duty's going to be first-person. So that's that's a differentiator right there. Um, you know, I don't understand yet, and I don't think anybody really knows yet how the um, how that whole thing is going to play out. Um, in terms of how many players they haven't said yet they haven't committed to 100 players uh, in a in a single match so it could be significantly smaller than that it could be probably more than uh, darwin projects i think 10 players um so it'll probably be more than that i don't know if they'll reach 100 um you know i don't know one of the cool things is if you you know a lot of people love black ops you know treyarch has done a really good job in creating you know, the, the stories behind the Black Ops games. And I know people will laugh at me when they say, you know, hey, the Black Ops stories are good. No, they really are. That first Black Ops game was was absolutely wonderful storytelling. Um, you know, they're going to kind of tie these characters together and tie these pieces of the maps together. But when they did that reveal and I watched that reveal, I'm like, I liked those games, but boy, those characters weren't super sticky. Nope. Um, so I'm not sure how that's going to work. I, I don't know. I, I don't know... If AAA diving into the Battle Royale arena is going to be sticky, but at the same time, the thing about PUBG and the thing about Fortnite is those are standalone experiences and your progression, your cosmetics, all that stuff are going to carry over for as long as those games run. 
Call of Duty is an annual game. So unless they do something interesting, like separate out Blackout and make it its own download and make it its own thing. So they do kind of what Fortnite did, where you still have to... Because the PvE game is still in early access, I believe, and you have to buy it. But, but Battle Royale is free. So if you just want Battle Royale, you just go download it. So unless Activision does something like that and splits Blackout off into its own thing down the line so people can download it and they monetize it off of cosmetics, kind of like how Fortnite does, um, or the Battle Pass, which I think is also fantastic monet- a fantastic monetization strategy that Epic uses for Fortnite um, Battle Royale. Yeah. Uh, so unless you know Activision splits that off and makes that its own you know persistent game as a game service then you know blackout's a one-year thing like i'm sure people will continue to play it you know for a little bit longer but you lose you know a lot of your audience for call of duty multiplayer the next year when the next one comes out i'm not saying you lose the entire audience but you lose a chunk of it. you lose a chunk and it's maybe one of the most fascinating stories for me this year is just seeing like all right when does this bubble burst or is this just a new mode that almost every game is going to do? Is this capture the flag? Is God, this I team deathmatch? I go back and forth on this because I do love, I, I love battle royale games, and I know it's going to get old. I played, you know, two hundred hours of PUBG. I just finally won my first Fortnite game, and I was like, man, this game is pretty good. And I, I, I'm like you, where the Black Ops stories I think are some of the best Call of Duty stories. But I am now more fascinated in buying Call of Duty Black Ops 4 than I would have been because there's this blackout mode, because there's this other feature that I already like, and I like the way Call of Duty plays, and I just want to know how they put that together. How do you take this this more, uh, plotting might not be the right word, but you're setting things up during a long period of time in a uh, Battle Royale game where you're you're getting equipment, you're finding materials, and Call of Duty is so twitch. It's so yep. turn a, two people turn a corner and who fires first. That's when I yeah. think of Call of Duty. That's what I think of it. So how do you take that and make it work? Because Battlefield is the game that I think makes the most sense of the AAA shooters for a Battle mm-hmm. Royale game because it's already kind of this giant battlefield that sometimes you just, you're running for long stretches and you don't see someone. And that's what a Battle Royale game is to me. But if Call of Duty can take their formula and make it work with this, then maybe it doesn't, people don't get tired of Battle Royale. They see, well, you can do a lot more with Battle Royale. You don't just have to do a, a, a Radical Heights RIP kind of thing where mm-hmm. it's, you know, this is a very similar game. We're going to do a very similar, just like we're going to change the style of it. Call of Duty looks like it's saying, we're yes, the style is different because the style is inherently Call of Duty, but the way that you play and the way that you approach encounters is going to be entirely different. So I feel like there's well, so much room. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is room. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see some people who iterate on multiplayer remember back in the X, the early days of the xbox 360 and playstation 3 we talked about bullet point multiplayer the only reason this game has multiplayer is because games are supposed to have multiplayer says the publisher and then you had some games like gears of war which revolutionized you know multiplayer with horde mode and then all of a sudden horde mode started making its way into other games and some games did it really really well yeah and other games just like literally copy pasted what gears did so um, so I think what we're going to see is a splitting of the difference. You're going to have some games that come out and they have battle Royale mode and it's, and it's rote. It's not innovative. It's literally just copying, copying the formula and using the assets of another game and it becomes bullet point battle Royale. And then you're going to have some games like what call of duty could be doing. What I think you're probably right and is doing in its own way, making battle Royale its own and doing it in the same way, like 
innovating on capture the flag or capture points or um, or any other any of the other things that that Call of Duty has done to um, you know to to innovate on uh, on some established modes. I, I, what I think you're going to have trouble with moving forward is you're going to you're going to need if you're going to want to monetize it over a long period of time if you're going to want people feeling comfortable um, in spending that money on cosmetics you know you need to be able to tell people that you know you're going to be able to, to have this for a while and I think that's where the standalone games succeed is you know Fortnite if you bought the 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 John Wick looking like looking skin. You know, for as long as Fortnite is out, you're going to be able to use that skin. Um, you know, if you like your pickaxe, if you like your if you like your skin, if you like your glider, those are going to be with you for potentially years and years and years and years. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with an Overwatch skin. It's why I don't think we're going to see Overwatch two anytime soon, because Overwatch is is essentially a platform. And I think that the battle royale games that live as platforms right now are going to continue to succeed, and that's Fortnite and PUBG. Um, I think the game, if you try to launch a game now as a battle royale platform and you're not doing anything wildly innovative, then you're going to have some commercial commercial struggles. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that investment into that platform is what keeps you coming back. Like that's really important for me in a Fortnite, in a PUBG, and especially in Overwatch where you want to... You, you want your, your rank and your stats and your skins and everything to, to mean something. And that does not mm-hmm. mean something if there's an Overwatch 2 next year and there's no Overwatch 3 the year after that. Then you feel like you're just, ah, I'm renting this space for a bit. And there's going to be yep. a new one that I need to get or I'm going to feel like I'm, I'm behind. Uh, last couple of things. Again, super appreciate your time. Um, from all the different discussions you've had with developers, publishers, indies, and people who... You've, you, you've had on the phone to now people you're helping consult. What do you think is the most common misconception people have about how games are made? We've talked about this, this lack of maybe a business understanding when they're being covered, but even further, further than that, the people who play games often have no idea how they're made and, and how these things come together. They don't know the difference between a developer and a publisher or the different mm-hmm. players on a development team. Uh, from everything you've learned, what do you think is... Maybe just the biggest overall misconception about what it takes and what goes into making a video game. I, I think that the the one statement that I see from end users who don't really understand the scope of what it takes to bring any game to market, let alone a AAA game, a big budget AAA game, uh, the statement that I see often that infuriates me is the 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 myth of the lazy developer. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really wish that those people who believe that developers made a decision because they were lazy uh, could spend a day in that studio and understand what it's like to, to bring one of those games to market. Um, you know, I think it is okay. You know, this, this, is, this is the double-sided thing. It is okay to criticize the things you like. It is okay for the things you like to be criticized. Um, as long as those criticisms are fair. Yeah. And I think that uh, this idea that exists out there amongst some corners of the gaming community, that a developer didn't work hard enough to bring a game to market in the way that it was launched. I'm not saying that every game is perfect. I'm not saying that every game... Um, I'm not saying that there's, there's no room for, for criticizing games that just aren't good games. But... A good, a bad game doesn't mean that the developer was lazy. 
It means the developer made some mistakes in their process. Hopefully we'll do better next time. Hopefully we'll understand what they did wrong. They've hopefully learned from this. But it doesn't mean the developer is lazy. In fact, that developer probably worked their ass off to bring that game to market and is probably already aware of the things that are wrong with that game. Um, but for one reason or the other, felt it was time to launch the game. Whether that was a business reason or because the game was as good as it could possibly be. And it was important for them to get it out there uh, from an emotional perspective as well. And I think that people don't understand that. Um, you know, so that's that's a big misconception amongst consumers that, that I see a lot. Um, and I think the other one is that... Um, and I understand where this where this comes from is this this whole publishers are evil statement. Um, I think publishers have a fiduciary responsibility. I think that publishers, like every business, makes mistakes along the way. I think that looking at monetization models uh, across the board, and this happened with cosmetic DLC, and this happened with a variety of microtransactions. Uh, and now it's happening with loot boxes, that publishers put those in the game to be evil. And I think that there were probably mistakes made in the loot box arena. In fact, no, I know there were mistakes made in the loot box arena. And some of that was in implementation, and some of that was in how those decisions were made. And I think that, um, you know, not going after the developers, I think we saw a lot of attacks on developers, um, you know, when that happened, I think people really just, again, this is not understanding the difference between a developer and a publisher and somebody who worked on art and animation or narrative versus someone who made the the, the decisions about how the game was going to be monetized. Um, and I really wish developer or uh, end users would understand like the different roles. I think um, uh, Kirk McKean, uh, I think he was writing for VG twenty four seven, didn't you know asked a number of people who. Um, uh, you who work in the industry asked a number of people what they what their jobs were. Explain your job to a layperson, and he kind of aggregated all of these stories in a, in a piece. And I think that's that's that should be required reading for um, for end users before they jump in and start to criticize people. Uh, and the last thing, you know, there's this there's this pervasive assumption that all DLC and all microtransactions um, those have just been bad for the industry. And the one thing I'd like to point out is that the number of stories that were written about studios uh, that went like this, uh, or a series of stories that were written were, hey, this game's in development. Hey, this game went gold. Two weeks later, hey, this the studio just laid off half its staff. And it's like, oh, and now they're hiring up again a little bit later. But that whole laying off half its staff thing happened because there was nothing for, for there was no way to, to keep those people working. There was nothing for them to do. If you look at the, the, the um, advent of DLC and... Whether that's large expansions or micro or micro DLC, whether that's art assets or con or like playable content, you've got artists that are still working after the game's launched. Those people aren't being fired anymore. You've got audio people who are still employed and still on that project because there's still more to do. So that's bridging them to the next big project. So what you're seeing is, and then not universally, we do still see layoffs for a variety of reasons. But what you're seeing now is that um, you know there are there are fewer people who are being laid off because there's nothing left for them to do once a game ships or once a game goes gold. So I, you know, I think that understanding of the business aspect of the, of the industry 
um, might inform some of the discourse about some of the monetization practices. Again, I'm not saying there's not room for, for criticism because there certainly is, but understanding the full scope of, of how those interact with the people who make our games. And I think that's something that people forget all the time is that people are behind the games that we play. Yeah. Um, and those people deserve to be treated with respect. Um, I think that would go a long way for end users um, and their compassion and empathy. Yeah, DLC is not evil. DLC is good. And very often DLC is also not content that was pulled from the main games so they could sell it yep. to you later. Uh, it, games go gold and it takes a bit for them to come out after that. And that is a good period for people to start ramping up on DLC. So like there's mm-hmm. just so many misconceptions there. And I think the and another thing I super agree with is just there are so many people who, first off, you have no idea what they do because there's so many different aspects to who makes games. And getting to know those people is important because there are people who are incredible concept artists there are people who are incredible programmers there are people who are incredible combat designers that are out there and you might just know Hideo Kojima or Cliff Blazinski or Mm -hmm. whoever's leading the studio but the number of people who are just as talented or more talented that do stuff and that you might never know like I it's hard to get to know those people but what I hope to sometimes do on this podcast with the different people I talk to is highlight those people because those people Mm -hmm. are out there they're incredible what they do and they contribute massively to this this game or this series that you love so you shouldn't just look at who's at the top you should look at who is actually making the stuff you're doing a last thing uh after all the work you've done in games um again between media and and consulting and and working with developers do you ever get the itch to make your own game or have you seen so much where you're like fuck this i am never getting into making video games um I, i think i would at some point like to be involved in that process if not from the I will leave design to the people who know design well. I don't know that I could, I don't think I could do as good a job as the people who play even the games that I'm iffy on, let alone the games that I absolutely love. Um, But I would absolutely love to be involved in that process in a way to get to know it better um, and to, you know, really support the people who do that work. Uh, And I think that, that is my, if not in media, then, and as a journalist, then then my role ideally would be someone who supports the work of the people who who make the games that we love. Yeah. Um, so I so yes, I'd absolutely love to be involved in that. But um, I, I I feel like I, I understand enough about my own creative skills to know that um, I'd like to support the people who do that work and do it well, rather than than do it on my own. <laughs> I totally understand that, uh, Mike. Where can people find you on social media, and what are you working on right now that you can talk about? Sure. Um, you can find me at Futterish, F-U-T-T-E-R-I-S-H. Um, by the time this airs, I will have, I believe, a number of pieces up uh, out of E3. Um, so waiting for my assignment. So if that all works out the way I believe it's going to, they'll be on Variety, um, thanks to Brian Crescente. And um, other than that, we are working on finishing up the Game Dev Budgeting Handbook, which will be out sometime this year once we get layout and art done. Perfect. Mike, thanks so much for doing this. It really was, when I started doing this podcast, you were on my radar of people who has this this wide variety of knowledge about things that I care about. And I think things who things that people who listen to this podcast care about. So it was fun catching up. It was fun going over all of these crazy things because this year has been (laughs) bonkers with video games. Uh, Mostly good. A couple bad things, but mostly good. Um, And yeah, down the line, once more crazy stuff happens, like let's say the Battle Royale bubble bursts, we should get back on and discuss everything that's going on. I would absolutely love it. Thank you so much. And keep up the good work, man. You do great work. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.